Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another episode. Today, we have our wonderful guest speaking all things self-compassion and the inner critic. Later, we answer a listener question on being an empath and how to take care of your mental health. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another episode. I am Kat. I am a registered psychologist. And I'm Amy, a registered psychotherapist. And together we are your hosts of the Psychology Sisters. Today we have a very special guest with us, Amy. Can you tell us a little bit about our lovely special guest? We do, we do. We have the brilliant Talini. She is a counsellor, a colleague and a dear friend of ours. And she's so fabulous uh, for this topic because she just has the most nurturing, caring, calming presence and um, she just has such great knowledge when it comes to self-compassion and the inner critic, the two little voices inside our heads. Welcome to Lini. Thank you for that amazing welcome Amy and Kat. So nice to be here with you both. How are you feeling about your, is this your first podcast? It is my first podcast. I can't say that I've been on another podcast, but I do my own audio posts. Oh, well, we love your audio posts, but welcome to the first podcast. It might be a little bit different, um, but we're very excited to have you on. We've had a lot of listener questions in regards to a lot to do with how to look after your own mental health, especially when you're someone who is in a job or a profession that is more of a caring profession and job so this is such a great topic and when you offered to talk about it I you know was really happy to hear because we have so many questions from people about it so very excited to have you on and to talk about all things self-compassion. Likewise the feeling is mutual and yeah hopefully all of those listeners that have put in these questions will benefit from today's podcast with And yeah, definitely. And I think this unprecedented global trauma is so timely for this episode because I feel there's so much pressure on people to use this time productively. You know, if you're not learning a new language, decoding Braille or starting a side hustle, mastering the art of French cooking, you're falling short of the expectation to achieve. And I think this provokes a really unrelenting stress um, around I guess a misconception that self-compassion or kindness to oneself is lazy or you're letting yourself off the hook and it's often associated with like a lack of ambition or a lack of work ethic. So I feel like this podcast is a nice um, invitation to consider that self-compassion might be quite the opposite of what people tend to think that it is. Yeah, absolutely. I think that there are those associations with self-compassion sort of letting yourself off the hook or sort of encouraging us to be less motivated and um, we're not likely to sort of reach our potential and hopefully this podcast can sort of debunk that type of myth Um, Mm. and also give some context as to why we, you know, sort of have learnt that particular message about self-compassion and why we've almost sort of shoved it to the side um, as opposed to sort of welcoming it with open arms. I think it's timely obviously with the pandemic, but it's also timely now that everyone's starting to go back to a a bit more of their normal life. And I think it's really good to know as well as you transition back to normal life in quotation marks, it's it's handy to have self-compassion as a life skill, but certainly at this time in, especially in Australia to not be so hard on yourself and expect that you've got the same productivity, um, I don't know, level of fitness, social time as you did before. And I think that's a really good 
good thing to know. Very timely. Very, very timely. I would have to agree. And I think that the pandemic that, that has occurred is still occurring has definitely put a spotlight on mental health and what we can do for our mental health because we have really been asked to sort of disconnect on a physical level and, and, and that sort of triggered perhaps a lot of mental health concerns for a lot of people. So I think in a way the pandemic has sort of provided that insight that we do need to prioritise our mental health, not just when things are not going right, but when when they are going right as well. Mm, definitely. I think that's a really important message too. Like, like you're both saying, even when things do settle down or when we do go back to what is quote unquote normal, that we need to keep prioritising our mental health because even amidst a pandemic, I feel like, um, you know, as a clinician working with um, clients and also my personal life, I'm seeing people run faster and pushing harder and staying up later and working more aggressively to try and keep up in comparison to, you know, what the expectation should be. And I feel like that is, I guess, comparable to before the pandemic, you know, there's this common feeling that if you're, if you're taking time out, then you're, you know, you're not working to your full potential. And we do need to get rid of that mindset that if we're not drilling ourselves into the ground, then we're not going to succeed. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I I would, I would absolutely agree. And I think that is one of the reasons why self-compassion can sort of be difficult for, for some people or may not be something that people turn towards because the societal messages that we do receive is about achieving, is about being successful. And, you know, if we're not doing any of those things, we sort of begin to blame ourselves because we think that we, other people are going to be ahead of us. And being dominant, being powerful, being important um, is sort of associated with being valuable and worthy. And so as you talk about, you know, people wanting to sort of exhaust themselves and feel, you know, every single minute of their day, we, we often sort of forget about, hey, this is actually quite an unsettling time and, and it's sort of really important for us to also look inwards as opposed to looking outwards around, you know, what we can achieve, what other people are going to perceive of us because we've made the most of this, I guess, unprecedented time. really, really good and sage advice. So I guess for people that aren't really aware of self-compassion or this is kind of an introduction to self-compassion, I mean, it it seems pretty self-explanatory, but I know it does go a lot deeper than just kindness to yourself. So Talini, can you kind of give us an an idea of exactly what self-compassion entails? Yeah. So self-compassion really is more than being nice to ourselves. It's really about having an awareness of, I guess, a pain that we're going through, a difficult experience that we may be going through, uncomfortable feelings and, and really being present with that. Um, along with that is really being understanding of that pain that we're going through as a part of a human experience, that it's a part of life, that we're not sort of going through this alone and being non-judgmental in, in what we're going through, whether it's our feelings, the difficult experience or pain, being non-judgmental of that and labelling ourselves and labelling our experiences and, and doing that through being kind to ourselves, through our actions and our words. So for me, the way that I sort of see self-compassion is really about being your own best friend. You know, that best friend that is able to say, hey, I can see that you're going through a tough time at the moment. Let's sit down. Let's be here for you. Uh, We don't need to do anything. We just 
let's just sort of be here and, and understand what's going on for you and not try and change, not try and minimize or maximize any of that pain or that experience, but just being comforting and loving and being non-judgmental. So the way that I really see it is really like being your own best friend. Mm, definitely. I couldn't have said it better myself. I think, I don't think self-compassion and compassion for others are two different things. I, I think compassion is compassion and how we show compassion for others should be how we show compassion for ourselves as well. So yeah, exactly right. How you would how you would show compassion for your best friend is exactly what how self-compassion should be. I know for some clients that I talk to about being more compassionate for, for yourself, you know, we say talk to yourself like you would a best friend, but I think going into the depth of, of how you talk to yourself, because it's not just what you say, but how you say it to yourself, the tone that you use, you know, when it's a, when you sit down with a best friend, you're, you're comforting, you're, you have a really soothing tone, you're really understanding, you're reminding your best friend of the amazing challenges and struggles they've got through. Whereas when you do it to yourself, you, you, we tend to overlook our the struggles and the challenges in our childhood and the baggage that we have. We tend to just see it on surface level and think, well, you know, that person could do that. Why can't I do that? And I think we tend to forget all the little layers that make us up and the things that we've been through to get to this stage. And I think that's so important that, you know, exercises, how do you talk to your best friend? You know, what would you say if your best friend came to you and said, oh, I got, you know, um, I didn't go, I didn't get that promotion that I worked so hard for. And then what would you say to yourself if the same thing happened? And, and, and I see a lot of clients, they have that, it's very different what they'd say to their best friend versus what they'd say to their self. So I guess like, why do you think that people are so self-critical? Like what, what's kind of your thoughts on that? I think that a big part of us sort of being more self-critical and more connected to that is we do have a negativity bias. And I guess being a human, that's, that's sort of a part of our, our old brain that's that stayed with us and I guess what it's sort of designed for us to do is to really look out for what's not working, what's not going right, what may be a potential threat and it's it's there to, to keep us alive, it's there to, to survive and from an evolutionary perspective um, that negativity bias was to sort of keep our, our physical safety I guess protected whereas now as we've evolved as a species we now see sort of other threats within society whether that be someone who's look, looked at us the wrong way or not but not getting a promotion. I guess the negativity bias it can really encourage us to sort of have that constant running commentary in in our mind where you might even notice yourself evaluating your experiences in your mind quite a bit and and as we've spoken about it can be very very critical and sometimes for people that have childhood trauma or have had really adverse childhood experiences we can tend to be more in a self-criticism um or or be more attuned with um our inner critic um, because it operates as a, a coping mechanism. Sometimes it is less painful to be angry and, you know, to be fault finding and dismiss or minimize our pain and our needs because turning inward and really sitting with those feelings and those experiences would be far too painful to cope with. So I think that's that's another reason why a lot of us will tend to be really self-critical. Yeah, absolutely. Tied in with that is our immediate family and our caregivers, whatever our family context sort of looks like. 
our immediate family and our caregivers, they play a really important role in our upbringing. And that role is to provide that basic support, uh, to provide comfort and love. But I think also when it does come to our upbringing, there can also be an aspect of control that comes through. And we might see that during our upbringing coming through uh, with critical comments. So, you know, we may have grown up in a family where education was really important, career was really important. And some of the comments that we might have been told or heard might be, you know, if you don't work hard, you're going to regret it. Or, you know, you're going to, if you don't work hard, you're going to be a failure. You're going to amount to nothing. Or, you know, if you sort of steer away from a career pathway that is different to what your parents or your caregivers wish for you, they might sort of say, you know, don't be stupid. It's, you know, that career is not going to take you anywhere. And parents and caregivers, whilst they have the best intentions when they say these, these comments um, and, and they can be justified as wanting to sort of um, have the best for their child, we can, of course, internalise those experiences and become self-critical where we are less likely to be self-compassionate because we sort of get told through these messages that there's an idea of perfection, there's an idea of how we're meant to be. And if we don't live up to that, then we aren't worthy. And so we can begin to sort of reject ourselves and, and really sort of be more critical of ourselves when we aren't meeting what society tells us, what our parents have told us that, uh, that we should be. So, you know, our immediate family can definitely play, play a role in that. Definitely. And, and I think that's also I, really important to consider how your inner critic or those attitudes developed. So exactly like you're saying, where did those words come from and how do you hear them? Was it from a parent who was quite critical? Um, and, you know, is it in a harsh, like kind of scorning way? And then... I guess it's about you may still hear that criticism, but you don't necessarily have to be it. So it's kind of that, like you were saying initially when we were talking about what is self-compassion, it's about being mindful and understanding how our attitudes and how our thoughts develop. And I think that's a really, really great point to be mindful of is where did this inner dialogue of criticism come from? Absolutely. And I think that if someone feels safe to sort of explore that, uh, whether it's on their own or with a therapist, it can definitely help to sort of separate from those thoughts and to really sort of develop their own identity, their own voice, as opposed to sort of repeating uh, what someone else has told them um, and, and what they have come to believe is, is the truth. So I think that there's a lot of power um, and empowerment that can come from being able to to understand that and 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 really be able to move. Not necessarily doesn't as you say it doesn't necessarily mean that those thoughts may not come, but you're going to have a different relationship with them. And I guess you learn to challenge them. And I think that's what you're saying about the benefit of therapy or, or just talking out with someone. We tend to generally automatically accept our self-critic and those negative thoughts. And we kind of never, well, for most of us, we just accept it as fact. We never really challenge it. And then when you have someone challenging it, you think, oh yeah, where did that come from? Why do I think like that? And I think also I want to bring up environmental because I think environmental, you know, obviously family and caregivers are a huge, huge impact on our self-critic. But let's talk about, you know, the education system is set up for right and wrong and failure and there are certain you know marks you need to receive or there's certain successes you need to reach there's certain sports you need to be good at in order to succeed in quotation marks and I think that 
that can set us up as well for failure. For example, we've all worked with children at some stage and we know the pressure that they put on themselves and, you know, it could come from family, but a lot of it does seem to develop in early childhood with schools because schools tend to have some kind of ranking system that sets children apart from each other where one is better than the other. And I think children start to learn that they need to reach a certain level to be good at something or to succeed and then they get rewarded if they are that good. So we intrinsically want to get rewarded all the time. And I think that genetic and environmental does play a huge factor in our self-critic. And I think just pausing and understanding where it's come from and challenging whether these thoughts are true is so, so important, I guess, to practice some self-compassion. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I think being able to take take into account that environmental influence and, and the role that teachers and also other peers can have on a particular person is is super important. And I think within society, we almost sort of get this message that self-criticism is going to keep you in line, um, that it's going to stop us from making mistakes. And we almost really become our own bully towards our, our pain and our suffering and our difficult feelings. So we really do add to our pain and we reject our pain essentially. And I think a role that this can sort of play is that it can really turn into that self-fulfilling prophecy where we sort of engage in thinking and behaviours to prove our own self-judgment. So for example, a student who might be particularly self-critical because there is a ranking system and they submit a piece of work. And, you know, this might also be for people who are out of school and they're at work. They might sort of do, do, do a piece of work and they don't get complimented for it. And they immediately think, oh, well, that means my work's not valuable. And they just begin to sort of put less and less effort into their work. And they do end up getting feedback that their work hasn't been up to scratch. So we can sort of engage in this self-fulfilling prophecy, which can turn to confirm our beliefs and, and sort of really not help that self-critic. We, we end up feeding it. Yeah, that's really interesting. So I guess sometimes self-compassion can get confused with a lot of other different terminologies. So for example, self-esteem sometimes tends to be intertwined with self-compassion. Can you kind of give us an idea of what exactly self-compassion is and and what it's not? Yeah, I think that one of one of the two sort of main misconceptions that people believe self-compassion is or what self-compassion will lead to are is one, that it's self-indulgent, so that if you are self-compassionate, that you are just totally absorbed within yourself. You're just so focused on you. You're comparing other people's experiences to yours and you almost sort of see your pain, your suffering as being more greater than than other people's and you sort of indulge in, in your pain, in difficult experiences and feelings. I think self-compassion how it differs from self-esteem is self-compassion is associated with things like healthy eating, exercising, sleeping enough, managing stress and and resting when you're sick. Self-compassion is about really understanding and being mindful of your feelings and I guess your experiences and how you respond to them. It's about common humanity it's about understanding that the situation that you're in might be painful and it might be tough but you're not alone no one's judging you for being in that and you understand that the way you're feeling and the situation is the best you can do with what you have and by having that 
self-compassion. It actually helps you accept your failures and accept your shortcomings. I think one thing that's really helpful in explaining what self-compassion is, is it's think of yourself as a child. You know, we can't help the family that we're born into. We can't help the cards we're dealt, for lack of a better word. And it's accepting that you did the best you could with what you had. You survived all of your hardest days thus far to the best you could with, you know, the resources and care you had available. And through that lens, we're able to really connect with human experiences and apply that to, well, bad things happen and ups and downs in life are normal. And I can sit in this situation and sit with this painful feeling and care for myself. And then I know that I'll be okay. I'll be able to help myself to achieve my goals or be the best version of myself with what I have. Yeah, absolutely. So I I guess another concept that people can confuse self-compassion with is this idea of self-pity and being worried that if we attend to our pain, if we attend to our difficult experiences, that we're going to sort of fall into this trap of just feeling sorry for ourselves and we're going to get stuck in that. And, you know, we might sort of adopt quote unquote, that victim identity. And we sort of let ourselves get away with things, which is something that we touched on earlier. And again, self-compassion is, is not necessarily feeling sorry for ourselves. It's actually being there for ourselves. It's about being empathetic to ourselves and being understanding. So we aren't engaging in self-compassion if we're engaging in behaviors where, for example, we are comparing ourselves comparing our experience to be greater than someone else's where where we might sort of be engaging in self-indulgent behaviors and it also doesn't mean that we sort of get stuck in our pain where we feel really helpless uh, where we may be engaging in self-pity so self-compassion is very different to to these two concepts that it can often be mixed with and and people sort of fear almost you know engaging in because they do worry that they are, are not going to be able to sort of move forward, that they're just going to sort of stay stuck in, in whatever they are going through. 100%. So, so now that we've kind of talked about what self-compassion mm. isn't, can you give us a deeper understanding of, of what exactly self-compassion is? Yeah, absolutely. So I think Amy's touched on, on one of the first sort of components of self-compassion, and, and that is to be able to practice mindfulness so really being able to see what is happening now. Uh, so whatever experience we are going through, seeing it for what it is now, nothing more or less to be able to respond to that situation. So typically when we go through a difficult time, we might notice ourselves either minimizing or exaggerating that experience or that, that pain or feeling. And we may engage in future thinking or ruminating about the past and and that sort of takes us out of the present moment. So mindfulness really encourages us to recognize our pain, our feelings. And I guess a way that we can look at this is that when we're mindful and when we're present with ourselves, we are able to sort of heal and change what we're going through because we can't change what we don't feel, right? If we don't acknowledge it, it's not there. Uh, and I guess our our programming, the way that our brain is sort of wired, it encourages us to go into problem solving mode, 
right, which again can steer us away from self-compassion. So when we go through a stressful or difficult experience, that, that response triggers a fight, flight, freeze uh, response where we are prompted to avoid the pain and not attend to it. And if we engage in that, we can, we sort of add to that emotional experience that we are going through. So self-compassion is not saying, you know, don't ever problem solve, don't actually, you know, do anything that's going to, to help be productive with, with whatever you're going through. What it's saying is, is that we need to first attend to our pain and be there for it. And, and then we are able to sort of move on to problem solving if, if that's sort of, you know, required, depending on, on what the context is. Mm-hmm. So really encouraging us to to be there for the pain uh, but to not be consumed where we might be over identifying with that where we might create elaborate stories like I said thinking about the future um, ruminating about the past where we might be more critical and we might be more reactive so what we're doing is we are playing a dual role right when we're being mindful we are playing a dual role and that is we are the one that needs comforting and we are the ones that are comforting ourselves. So we're being aware of our feelings, but we're not trying to change it. And we're really just flowing with what's happening because that's what mindfulness is about, right? It's about being in the present moment, moment to moment. And I think when, we, when we're able to sort of practice this concept when it comes to self-compassion, we reduce that likelihood of piling on feelings of frustration because we're not resisting the pain. We're not trying to change it. And with this, if you think about it as, as us sort of being present with, with what's sort of going on for us now, we are able to take more proactive steps to improve our situation. But at the same time, we're also able to recognize what steps we can't take because they're not in our control. So there, when we um, are dismissing or minimizing um, our difficult experience and we're, and we're being more critical, we are less likely to take a more clear and informed step to improve our situation than if we're being self-compassionate. So the second, I guess, most important quality when it comes to compassion is really normalizing difficulties as, as a common experience, as a shared human experience. And I think that's what I would hope a lot of us therapists do is, is validating the experiences that our the people that come to see us, um, that's something that we sort of offer. So it's really being able to acknowledge that the experiences and, and the feelings that we go through are shared by us all, you know. And I think when we're going through sort of difficulties, it can make us feel scared and angry when we sort of focus on these parts of us or our experiences and that we sort of perceive as undesirable or different from other people. So when we're able to remember that we are, are a part of something bigger than ourselves, we are more likely to be compassionate than critical. Uh, we sort of step out of that, that tunnel vision where when we're in that tunnel vision, we forget about everyone. We think everything's working out for everyone and we're, you know, we're sort of standing alone and we can begin to sort of be a part of this vicious cycle where we believe like we don't belong. You know, and I think that this can be a really major trigger for mental health concerns, this idea of not belonging, which if we are able to incorporate that into our life about, you know, normalising our experiencing experiences, reminding ourselves that we are not the only ones that are going through a painful time, uh, it can do a, 
a tremendous amount for our for our emotional well-being it and I don't want people to sort of think I don't want listeners to sort of think that this is about minimizing your pain or invalidating your you know experiences it's really about just saying looking at pain and difficult experiences and uncomfortable feelings in general and saying you know what we all experience this we experience them in different ways Uh, My experience is not greater or inferior to other people's, but we are all going through something in our own individual ways. And I guess this is why groups can be really, really effective as well, because we're reminded that we're not alone. And there was this interesting piece of research that I read, which showed that there was a reduction in anxiety and depression uh, symptoms uh, for cancer survivors and they had longer-term survival rates by being a part of a group uh, because they were able to sort of relate to other people. You know, they all had their individual journeys, but they were able to, I guess, you know, feel less overcome by fear with, um, with the experiences that they were going through because they felt connected. You know, they felt connected with other people. They felt a part of a shared experience again, going through their own individual thing, but, you know, we're here for one another. Mm. And um, I guess this is sort of a, a really difficult journey that that's a part of my life journey. Um, and, that, and that kind of takes the onus off them a little bit, doesn't it? Because when you're stuck in that, oh, why does this happen to me? You know, what have I done to deserve this? You, I guess people start to think, well, I have complete control over this. Why did this happen to me? And I think when you hear other people have gone through it, you I guess people start to think, oh, actually, you know, I don't have control over everything that happens in my life. And and as anxiety-provoking as that can be for some people, it can be a relief for others because, you know, when things go wrong, there's no 100% blame on yourself. It's like, well, that happened and that happened. It could be that, it could be that, it could be part me, but it, it kind of relieves the load a little bit of the failures. Um, and I think that's really important in, in, in self-compassion is understanding that everybody goes through this and understanding that it's not your fault. Um, if something happens, not 100% your fault. And that can be so relieving for people to hear. Absolutely. And I think, yeah, again, if, if that's the sort of thoughts that come up, it's that there's that inner critic coming up again, you mm-hmm. know, wanting to sort of point the blame and point the blame at you if, if that's the way that your, your thoughts dictate uh, what's going on for you. And the beautiful thing about self-compassion, which you also touched on, is that, yes, we are less likely to compare where we're wanting to be perfect as well, because we realise that struggles and pain is a part of being human. So, you're less likely to think that you are unworthy as a human because Mm -hmm. by going through struggles, by going through pain, by going through difficult experiences, doesn't that mean that you're being human? So we allow ourselves to not have to step onto this pedestal where we have to be shiny and perfect and admired. And we're just, we allow ourselves to just be who we are. We're more accepting as opposed to critical and, condemning and constantly comparing because that because that inner critic is sort of ruling our behavior and our feelings I think it's also important that along with self-compassion is that you are building that relationship with yourself so even if you aren't a part of a support group again just being able to acknowledge that you're not going through this alone and that there are other people who are going through their own experiences it may not necessarily take that pain away but it can reduce the additional pain that we can add if we think that we are going through something alone or if we're the only person that is suffering 
I think when we talk about self-compassion, it's accepting that we are going to make mistakes and we are going to fail at things because like you just discussed, Delaney, that means we're human and it means we're doing a good job at being human. So it's appreciating that we're motivated to succeed and to aim high, but it's normal and, you know, a a pretty big possibility that we are going to make mistakes. We are going to, you know, fail at some things and that's okay. I think that that's also how self-compassion can be differentiated from self-esteem is, is that self-esteem, you know, does sort of focus on what you are good at and being able to sort of improve that and build your confidence within that particular area. Whereas with self-compassion, self-compassion is going to be there for you, whether you're good at something or not. Mm-hmm. Right. So it's not a self-compassion isn't trying to sort of build your strength in a particular area so that you can feel good about yourself about doing something. It's there for you. If you succeed at something, it's there for you. If you struggle with something, right, it's not going away. So I think that that's the sort of really beautiful thing about self-compassion is that it's always going to be by your side if you let it. <laughs> mm. It's good to know as well that, you know, we, we tend to focus so much on our achievements and our status and, and what we have to show for our efforts, whether it's working or out of work activities, you know, it's reaching milestones. But I think those things are such a small part of us. And I, I think that people tend to have this really oversimplistic view that if I get a really good promotion at work or if I get the best car or if I have a lot of friends that that is makes up all of their identity but I think we forget to look back and think well no that's only 10% of us so that's only 5% of us there's so much more to us that isn't marked by achievement and success and I think a lot of the the growth comes from failing and comes from making mistakes and and not just professional growth but personal growth if you make a lot of mistakes you, you're doing life well <laughs> you know, you're doing it you're doing it right Absolutely. And I think that's probably what we, you know, we, we may not recognize is that it, it, it has been our struggles, it has been, you know, our downfalls or our, um, you know, our failures that has actually helped us to be where we are or has helped us to turn a different path. Our, our brain is sort of wired to, to, to think in a default way and we have to sort of actively rewire that to, to sort of help us, particularly if we do struggle with that inner critic that we've been speaking about. And I guess the sort of last uh, beautiful component of, um, of self-compassion is kindness. And I think that we have really learnt and have been encouraged to practice this with others. As Amy sort of touched on earlier, um, we, you know, we can do the, we may be able to do this with flying colours, you know, um, when we, when we practice this towards other people. And we've almost sort of learnt the opposite about ourselves, you know, when we sort of, you know, think about uh, going through a difficult time uh, or going through, um, yeah, just sort of a difficult experience. Often what I hear from, you know, we work with young people, what I hear from some parents is you, you know, if they're going through a difficult time and they're struggling emotionally and this isn't like them, um, they sort of say, you know, my daughter or my son, they're strong, but they're, I know them to be strong, but they're crying at the moment. You know, they, this is not, this is not the son or daughter that I know. And so there's this misconception that us being strong equals us not showing that we, again, are human and have pain and struggles and feelings. So we've really been taught to be strong in a way that's really stoic and silent to our suffering, you know, and that we have to sort of mask it. So kindness is really about 
actively comforting ourselves and being able to say, hey, like this is difficult for me, you know, being able to pause and say, you know, how can I comfort myself in these moments, which I think is super important. We don't press that pause button. We just go, go, go. We, our brain activates us to, to go into problem-solving mode. Along with this kindness is really being understanding of our mistakes and our embarrassing moments. So I, I think that what something that we can often overlook and what we don't realise is that we can become very obsessive uh, when it comes to mistakes and embarrassing moments where we are constantly wanting to change what, what has just happened and we sort of replay it in our mind and the thing is, is that we only intensify these feelings because we are actually creating more elaborate stories and we're changing that story even more because of the way that we are thinking about that situation, you know, how we were, how they, you know, how that other person perceived us. And, uh, and, and, and this can sort of become really, uh, I guess, vicious in a, in a way at, just over the weekend, I was going for a walk with a friend and there was a lady walking towards us. She smiled at, you know, she smiled at me from what I saw and, um, and I said hello back. And now the lady didn't say hello back. And my friend said, why did you say hello? Uh, and I said, oh, she smiled at me. Um, so I just said hello and she said, I would, have, I would have been so embarrassed. I would have felt like she rejected me. And so... And I guess the way that I sort of interpret that situation, I didn't necessarily, you know, interpret it as, as a rejection of, of me, but this is what we can begin to sort of internalise and really make it about ourselves. And we're really not doing ourselves any favours by obsessing about that, interpreting that situation and, and being even more critical of an experience that, you know, people may feel rejected in because they didn't get that same sort of response back. So, you know, when it does come to kindness, when it comes to self-compassion, it really helps us to reduce those self-judgments and, and also reduces our likelihood to condemn our struggles. Like, you know, I shouldn't be going through these struggles or, you know, you know the, these struggles are not, are not things that I should be experiencing. So when we're being kind, we are really soothing our pain. When we soothe our pain, we are, we're tapping into our caregiving system. So as much as our brain is wired for survival and protection and, and, and sort of fighting, so to speak, it's also wired for care as well. And our species needs it for survival. So when we are actually being kind to ourselves, we're being compassionate to ourselves, we're releasing oxytocin into our body. And that's the hormone that helps us to feel trust and calm and warm and safe and we can release that hormone with the thoughts that we, you know, with the words that we say to ourselves, with the thoughts that we may have, uh, with the, the emotions that we may experience. So it's also, it's also having an effect on our body, which can impact on the way that we feel. I, I think that, I guess, our ability to recognise and, and access our caregiving system can also relate back to our attachment style as well, particularly for people who, who might be thinking, well, it, it feels weird for me to be kind to myself. I know I've spoken with young people who find this concept really foreign. They, they don't talk to themselves in a nice way. And so I guess if you, if you do have more of a secure attachment the way that you relate to yourself is that, you know, that you are lovable, that you are worthy, that you do believe that, you know, you're cared for and the world is safe compared to more of an insecure attachment style where I guess you do perceive 
yourself and how others perceive you as being unlovable and unworthy and people can't be trusted. So people who, I guess, lean more towards an insecure attachment style, they are less likely to be compassionate towards themselves, Mm. but it doesn't necessarily mean that you cannot start to build that compassion and build a new attachment style with new relationships, with your own consistency, with your own practice of self-compassion. We're able to reshape that attachment style through the empathy, through the support that we provide Mm. to ourselves. Definitely. And one one way um, I work with clients in encouraging self-compassion for those that have an insecure attachment or even an ambivalent attachment is wh- how would you have cared for your younger self as a child? What, what did you need and how could you meet those needs now? So imagine, you know, there was younger you running towards you and with, you know, a situation or something that happened. What did you need then and how can you care for yourself now? It's a really great way to, um, I guess, develop self-compassion for someone that has um, an insecure attachment and feels unlovable or, you know, finds it really difficult to uh, feel love if love is a painful emotion. Yeah, and I, I really, really like that particular exercise that you, you practice with your clients. And one yeah. other thing which is I think really important is how our self-compassion can send messages to our brain like oxytocin and you know calming down our parasympathetic system you know turning off our fight or flight even really practical self-compassion activities like touch I've spoken about this in previous episodes. So even touch for yourself. So whether that be hugging yourself, you know, giving yourself a foot massage, or like I said, if you um, are kind of thinking about what your inner child needs or how needs could be met, if you're a young um like when you were a child, if your needs for affection weren't met, what would that look like for you now? So like I said, whether it was giving you yourself a hug or caressing your own face, and usually um, those practices are most powerful when you think back to an experience and you can meet that need. So whether it be a time where you have a really positive experience and you kind of remember how that felt or a time where you you might have made a bid for affection affection, and you were neglected. Um, it can be helpful to practice self-compassion with what you needed then. It could even be something like putting, you know, your hand on your heart and sitting with your emotions. Our brain does recognize the difference between our own touch and someone else touching us, but it still has the same benefit where touch sends a message to activate our parasympathetic nervous system which calms down our stress response and makes us feel safe and you know calm and can just be a really good practical activity for self-compassion I guess another side of self-compassion that would be really interesting is, you know, we've talked about how it's very gentle and we want to, we're trying to soothe ourselves and be really kind, but I think there is also a strength in self-compassion because I think there's two sides where there's a part of you that needs to say no to things or it needs to tell others that they're not treating you properly. You know, there's a, there's a side of you that needs to be the motivator and the protector, but there's also the side that needs to be the self-soother as well because so, it's not just being self-soothing and kind. That's definitely an important part, but it's also protecting yourself for future things that could happen, especially if you are someone with a 
an anxious attachment or ambivalent attachment. So it's almost like the protector and the soother in one. I think that's a really important part of self-compassion, which sometimes can get overlooked. Yeah, absolutely. Um, And I guess, you know, that can really come into play when we are being more mindful of what we're going through as well. If we're aware of what we're experiencing, if we are aware that we might be in a relationship that is not healthy for us, uh, being able to be self-compassionate to ourselves that, you know, this is this is a situation that we are in, but also being able to take the steps to protect ourselves from, from from that relationship if it's not if it's not one that's healthy for us. We wouldn't just stay in that in that self-soothing and that acknowledgement of, of whatever we're going through. We'd also use that information to help us to take some proactive steps as you say, to, to channel the, the motivator and protector within us as well. So we had a listener question, Talini, that we thought would tie really well into self-compassion. So we want to talk about if you're someone who is an empath, so someone who puts a lot of energy into other people, into listening and understanding other people, especially if you're in professions that you do care for other people a lot, or if you just naturally have a personality that cares a lot about other people and can really take on their feelings and, and almost feel it yourself. What are some techniques? Or what are some ways if you are an empath and you're really trying to practice self-compassion, what would you recommend for someone who maybe just needs a little bit of self-love and self-compassion? Yeah. Um, I think, you know, when it comes to anyone that sort of identifies as being an empath, first and foremost, it's a beautiful quality to have. Um, And I guess you have this sort of unique ability to be able to recognize and have a willingness to understand pain. And and what we sort of find is that it is, as you say, typically directed at other people where we can forget ourselves. And we are more likely to feel guilty or ashamed if we are attending to our, our own pain and if we can't be there for other people. So I think an important thing is being able to acknowledge that your pain is important that your pain is valid and that your pain or your difficult experience, you know, deserves attention as well. I think that as an empath, attending to yourself, you often find that selfish and you get worried that if you do, if you do attend to yourself, that you're going to lose your empathy by showing care and understanding to yourself. Um, And it may not necessarily be a conscious belief. You may not be conscious that, you know, you have this belief that, if I attend to myself that I am going to lose my empathy or other people are not going to sort of see me as empathetic. But yeah, just being able to acknowledge that your pain is important as we've sort of, you know, been speaking about what self-compassion is. Again, it doesn't sort of compare one's pain to be any greater or lesser than other people. So being able to take care of yourself and if you do consider yourself to be an empath and let's just say, you're going through a difficult time. Your friend is going through a difficult time. So you, you know, you kind of, you're, you're kind of in a bit of a pickle uh, and your natural default is, oh, you know, I have to be there for my friend. I need to sort of use my empathy skills, really being able to be honest with yourself and identify that, you know, whether during this time being there for someone else where you will have to put your needs aside right? Unless it's sort of a mutual, a mutual sort of exchange. Will it, will it sort of help or hurt the pain that you're going through? And you really have to be honest with yourself. 
And being able to attend to someone else is going to intensify that pain that you're going through because you are dismissing it. You are, you may be minimizing it and, and really being able to be honest with yourself in a non-judgmental way. So being mindful of thoughts like, you know, I must not be strong enough because I, I can't be there for my friend or I'm going to lose my friendship with my friend because I'm not able to be there for her. Um, I'm, I'm an awful friend. So really being able to be honest with yourself and in a non-judgmental way where you are able to acknowledge that your pain is just as important as your friends and you are not going to lose your empathy and then you're no less empathetic mm. by attending to your pain. Mm. And um, you're, not, and again, you're not a bad friend either if you, if you need to look after mm. yourself. Yeah, Definitely. I think setting healthy boundaries is really important, mm. um, being an empath. And exactly like you said, I guess honouring that your own emotions and your own pain is just as important as helping others as well. And and when you have, like, when you are empathetic and self-compassionate, you kind of set the standard. I think, Ains, as you said, you set those boundaries. And if you do keep being an empath and and exchanging your energy and giving out your energy and you're not getting really any, you know, you're not filling your cup back up, what can happen is you can start to resent those people that take your energy and you can start to think, oh, they want to talk to me again or I don't have the energy but I better go because I, I, I feel guilty if I don't go or they've got way worse things going on. But you actually can start to resent that person or the situation and and that's not helpful for, for any of the parties involved. So even from from a point of view where it's you want to look after your friend, if you want to look after your friend, you need to look after yourself as well because you want that to stay healthy and you want the boundaries to stay in place and you want to make mm. sure you're filling your cup because you don't want to end up resenting that person or, or just feeling frustrated at the situation. Definitely. Absolutely. So practicing lots of self-care, distinguishing between your own emotions and, and those of others when we're absorbing other people's energy and other people's emotions. And I think what's also important for empaths is to connect with other empaths Mm. so that, you know, your emotions and your energy is also reciprocated so that you're being cared for too. And also you have a connection um, that is understood. I think, Ames, we talked about, um, I don't know which episode it was, but Different people, different people that you are around, whether it's work friends, social friends, family, they take different energies from you. So you might have a friend that needs a lot of love and or they might be going through something tough and they're taking a lot of your energy. And I think being really mindful of that, not every person that you're around will take the same amount of energy. And I think you're absolutely right. Being around an empath means that you get some of that energy back because they are they're very sensitive to how you're feeling and you get to talk mm. about how you're feeling as well. So being mindful of who you're around and how much energy they take from you. It's almost like a, a bit of a financial exchange, but like an energy exchange because different people take different energy from you and it can leave you exhausted if you have a, a friend or someone that you know that you're constantly bringing up and yet you're not being brought up. So self-compassion can be so helpful for those times where you feel pretty exhausted or burnt out. Mm. And another thing to to know is that for some empaths they avoid their own discomfort by trying to help others so I think if you are an empath and you are you know you're largely emotionally detaching from your own emotions um, as a coping mechanism it's important to note that detachment is I guess something that may need 
further support or additional support. So I guess if that's something that you're really struggling with and you're feeling really emotionally drained or burnt out, you're starting to resent those around you, I guess that is something that can perpetuate. So I think that might be something to note as well. If, if you feel like you're an empath and it's something that you struggle with to look after your mental health, that's another thing just to be mindful of as well. Mm, yeah, absolutely. I think um, particularly during those times when we might sort of be having to, it seems like a choice between someone caring for someone else versus caring for ourselves. Um, we might sort of be flooded with a bit of, you know, stress to sort of make this decision. So having a bit of a physical reminder, whether it be, you know, a quote or an affirmation or a picture to sort of remind ourselves, hey, I'm allowed to take care of myself. Hey, um, I actually need to comfort myself in this moment. I'm going through a difficult time can help us to, I guess, channel that self-compassion a little bit more easier than sort of relying on ourselves to do it, especially during that moment where we feel like we're a bit, a little bit stuck and, and a little bit, I guess, vulnerable um, where we are more likely to sort of put someone else before us because we consider ourselves an empath. So naturally our energy is going to want to go out first before it, it turns inward. So having a, you know, a physical reminder can help to help our brain a little bit in that moment where we can go, Hey, yeah, that's right. It's okay for me to attend to me right now. No judgments. It is a skill, self-compassion, isn't it? And it's, it's, as you said, it's not an automatic skill in what, you know, we are fighting a biological response here and just being really mindful that if you've got a tough day coming up or, you know, you've got something challenging, just having a few moments to say today is going to be really tough and it's okay if I'm not perfect. Just even affirmations like that, just being a little bit more aware of, of what's about to happen and just saying we'll kind of take it as it comes can be super, really, really helpful. Even if it's just taking a three-minute break to breathe, the breath is one of the most scientifically proven and easiest self-compassion practices to do um, because you can do it anywhere anytime and it has immediate benefits in calming and soothing okay so Um, Talini run us through your three-step strategy on how to practice self-compassion so I would like to say that this is not something that I came up with this is something that's come you know, out from, from the research. So don't want to claim what's not mine. <laughs> um, you could have easily gotten away with that. My fight flight friends response is activated. <laughs> oh my God. <clears throat> okay. So I guess a nice little three step strategy is one when we're sort of in a, a, a difficult situation or we're noticing that we are in that our inner critic is really out to play is really being first to observe the situation that we're in the harsh words that are coming up understanding the need that's coming through those harsh harsh words so the need that's coming through those harsh words uh validating and listening to that need so i'm going to go through an example to to make that a little bit clearer so let's just say the the situation that we've been observing is we haven't been exercising. So we haven't exercised for, for five days, right? And our harsh words are, I think I'm lazy. You know, I can't, I can't even bear to look at myself. Understanding the need of, of, of those harsh words is that you like to have exercise in your routine. 
exercise helps you to sort of feel good and, and is, is helpful for your mental health. Um, validating that need um, would be, you know, it's been hard to, it's been hard to, to work out for one day, for one hour a day, right? Because this is the expectation that you put on yourself. And listening to that need of, of wanting to exercise is being able to say, okay, I'm going to start with 15 minutes. So that's, that's step one. Um, so step two is really being able to soften our inner critic voice, being able to acknowledge that, you know, it has a purpose. Again, our inner critic is our, is our adapted way of surviving, right? It serves some type of purpose, but it, when it's not being helpful, we need to redirect that focus. So being able to say to ourselves when we hear that inner critic, I guess, you know, these words aren't really helping and I know that you're trying to help, but it's, it's only increasing my pain at the moment. It's intensifying what I'm going through. And, and so here you're acknowledging its purpose and you're redirecting its focus. And then the third step is being able to reframe those, those harsh words that uh, we, we sort of noticed ourselves saying at the start, I'm lazy, I can't bear to look at myself, reframing those words in a kinder way. So being able to say something like, you know, I'm struggling at the moment to follow through with the one hour a day that I, you know, used to do a month ago. And I can, I'm noticing that I'm not happy with the way that I feel in my body and that I may sort of be, uh, and what I'm sort of seeing, I'm taking this one day at a time and I'm focusing on what I can personally do. I'm not focusing on what I can't do. So hopefully this three step strategy, uh, is something that, you know, you can sort of adopt uh, if you do notice that inner critic coming up. That's a good good example. It's a good example, sorry, Selena, a good example for isolation because a lot of people are, you know, not doing the things that they were doing a month or two months ago. You know, for example, exercise, that's a perfect example. It's a lot of things have changed. So using that three-step strategy would be really good with people who are currently have a new normal at the moment so that's a really helpful way to to be a lot more compassionate towards yourself yeah i love that example thanks so much talini thank you talini. you're very welcome <laughs> so talini thank you so much for coming on today and sharing your magical wisdom with everyone you are obviously so passionate and knowledgeable about self-compassion it's such an important topic so i guess for people wanting to know more about you where can we find you yeah, so I, I have created a new page that I started about two months ago. Um, so it's Reflections WT. Uh, I'll pop it in the I'll pop it in the show notes so if people don't know how to find you. I can just link it straight into the the show notes so people can link. But Talini's got some really awesome videos that she puts up. It really sometimes I listen to them. It's just so quick to clarify things and so understanding mm. and so compassionate. So I really love your videos. So if you do go and follow her. Um, please watch her, her videos that she does and keep up the videos, Talini. They bring some calm to my day. <laughs> I love thank her videos. You. Yeah, I'm always you... like, damn, T. You girls are too kind, too kind. And I absolutely love your page. And it's been so nice to be able to connect with you girls on here and, and be able to talk about something that is something that we all practice with our clients in some way and be able to spread the word that self-compassion all the way self-compassion movement (laughs) thank you so much talini for coming on and we thank you guys so much for listening and we will catch you next episode Bye. bye
Thanks so much for tuning in to today's episode. If you want to see more, please follow us on Instagram at The Psychology Sisters. To make sure that you never miss another episode, please hit the subscribe button in the podcast app. If you know someone who might enjoy this episode, we would love you to share this with them. Please note the content shared in this episode is purely educational and does not replace personalized advice from a mental health professional. See you next week for more spicy science and sexy self-help.